Good morning, everybody. Wakey, wakey. You okay? Well, first of all, uh, my name's Adam. I'm the associate pastor here at Antioch, and uh, I just love our church family. I love being together. Um, I often tell people, uh, if I wasn't on staff here, I would go to this church. I would still want to be here because you guys are awesome and God's doing things in our community. I love it here. Um, and so thank you for being a part of this family and for being here today, especially if you're a guest. We're so glad you're here and hopefully you experience the presence of God. Before I jump into our series, we're in a sermon series called Life in His Name. But before I jump into it, I quickly want to just give a happy 4th of July weekend to everybody. Whoop, whoop. I hope you're doing something fun. You know, you're eating some deviled eggs or grilling out or something. I don't know. Uh, hopefully we'll see a firework or two and no fires will occur due to it in Jesus' name. And it'll be wonderful. Uh, but also part of, of why we celebrate 4th of July is it's our inde independence as a nation. It's, it's a celebration of us becoming a democracy that allows the people to have a voice and to vote. And, and I'm, I know that our country has gone through some massive tumultuous things culturally, politically, socially, um, all the lees, uh, economically, uh, right? Um, but what I want to say is... Uh, I pray that you would pause long enough to say, God, thank you that we live where we live. And thank you that we have the privileges and the opportunities. I have, my wife and I get to travel a decent amount in our life, and we've been to many, many countries. And every time I come back saying, wow, what privileges we have as U.S. citizens. Like, we are so blessed to be here. Um, thank you, God, that this is our country. And so I encourage you, instead of uh, picking up spears and throwing them metaphorically at people about what's going on in our culture, pray. Start to intercede for our nation. Ask God to move again. You know, there's been, there's been revivals in history over our nation. There's been a great awakenings is what they call where literally across from one side of the, of the nation to the other, from the east to the west, there's been these moves of God. And then there's like the, the Jesus movement in the 70s. There's been moves of God where the hearts of men and women in America has turned back to Jesus. So instead of accusations and instead of, of being just disgruntled and sitting and, uh, and, and, and maybe posting through social media your, your complaints, intercede. Pray for our nation. Pray that God would heal our land. Pray that God would move again in our country. Um, this is what I believe God can do again and what is what we're asking for. So I just, I want to invite you, I'm going to pray for our country real quick and I want to invite you to pray with me. Does that sound good? So Jesus, that's the very thing we want to start with is God, would you heal our land? And may it not start outside these walls and blaming all of everybody outside in society, but start with the church. Would the church become dependent on Jesus again? Not in our own strength, trying to prove our own ways, or our own ideologies, but God, may we align ourselves with Jesus and submit ourselves to Jesus and say, we want to be the answers to the world's problems. Historically, you've seen time and time again that you've used the church to bring reformation and healing and health care and, and education and, and people's human rights and abolishing slavery and, and acknowledging women's rights and just different things, God, because the church was willing to say yes to Jesus and would you do it again in us? Would revival happen in our nation? Would restoration happen in our nation? And God, would we, would we not be those who throw out accusations, but would we throw out petitions to Jesus saying, come and heal our land? And so, God, would you do that very thing? Would you restore our country? Would you let us continue to thrive as a democracy? Would you help us to, to be thankful and grateful and contribute and not be passive, frustrated people? So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. And just one quick plug. If you do not vote, I just want to draw your attention to a website called MyFaithVotes.com. 
uh, org, and it's just a great resource. You can register to vote there. They have voters' guides. They can tell you about different political people and what their, what their agendas or perspectives are on things, so it helps you be an informed voter. So if you're not registered to vote, I encourage you to check that out. It's really cool because as an Arizona person in this room, uh, August 2nd is the primaries for voting in, in Arizona, so you can sign up today and be prepared for August 2nd. Sound good? All right. Let's jump into the Bible. Open your Bibles. We are going to be in John chapter 15. We're going to be starting in verse 1 today. And as you're turning there and getting, or clicking there if you're using your phone, um, as you're getting there, uh, I just want to set up real quick that where we are in our study in Life in His Name, which is a study through the book of John, and we're in John 15, we find ourselves in what a lot of uh, theologians or Bible scholars call the upper room discourse of Jesus. So chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all five of those are all one setting, one experience where Jesus is in the upper room with his best friends, and he's talking to them about everything. He is, he is downloading his heart to his disciples, to his best buddies, saying, hey, here's some really important stuff because he knows he's about to go to the cross. This is his last, like, deposit into his disciples before the cross. And so it's, with that in mind, this is pretty important that we'd realize this is, if you're a parent and you're about to say goodbye to your kids for the last time, this is like what you'd want to give them. He's telling them some pretty important things. And in this process, we know that he, he washed their feet. We talked about that and how he served them and talked about servant-heartedness. And now what he starts to talk about is he's starting to talk about being connected to the vine. As a branch is connected to the vine, we are called to be connected to God. And so we want to read this and pick up in John 15, starting in verse 1. We read with me? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I had spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as you, abide in me as I abide in you, as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So what we have here is this, this imagery that Jesus is setting up, and he's setting up this picture of a vine and branches, and he's talking about this idea of being connected to him. He's talking to his disciples in this room. They just had a meal. They're hanging out. And he starts giving this imagery, this discussion of vine and branches. He's saying, you were called to be connected to me like a, like a vine and a branch are connected to one another, knowing that that's the only way that a branch can bear fruit. So what I want to do is I want to step back one step, and I just want to create space to discuss a principle that we see throughout all of the Gospels and throughout Scripture that's going to help us understand what's going on here. And this principle is about the economy of God. It's about this idea that God has this economic system of, of deposits and returns that's very different than the world's version of deposits and returns. The way that you invest in this life is different 
uh, in, in a spiritual context than the way that the world would encourage you to invest. And so what I want to do is I just want to talk a little bit about this idea of how are we fruitful and how do we prosper? I'm going to use that word, and that can be a trigger word for some people depending on their backgrounds and church experiences, but how do we prosper as believers? Because the Bible preaches that we do, but it's in God's economic system. It's in his method and his way. And so there's a couple principles I just want to draw our attention to, so hopefully this will make sense. The first one is I want to say that the kingdom lifestyle of stewardship will produce kingdom lifestyle rewards or fruits. When you obey Jesus and do things Jesus' way, you will be rewarded in the like. But when you do not, you will not. It's that simple. So we have to first acknowledge that to do things that produce kingdom fruit, we have to do things the kingdom way. So what are some of the kingdom ways? What are some of the principles in this economic system? And the first one is sowing and reaping. In Galatians 6, 7 through 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This idea is that our investment determines our, our returns. What you give yourself is what you'll get back. Now, this isn't karma. This is biblical. And this is pre-karma. Okay, so ignore karma. I'm not saying like what comes around goes around, you know. This is just the principle of what you give yourself to determines what kind of results you're going to have. And then it goes even further and it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So not only is it what you give yourself to, but the abundance or the fullness of what you give yourself to something determines not just what you get back, but how much you get back. This is a kingdom principle of economy of God. Does this make sense? You following me? So this is important because we want to know how, his, how do we live our lives? What do we give ourselves and why does it even matter? The second principle in God's economy is the perspective on wealth and generosity. We find this in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. God does not demonize wealthy people. He's not, so the poverty mentality isn't a biblical mentality either. But what he is saying is, like, don't put your hope in stuff. This world is fleeting. These things are only going to be temporary, and they're even uncertain, which we can obviously say in our current economy that that is very true, that money is uncertain. You don't know if it's going to be there or not. But there's this idea of what we are called to be in his economy is to be rich in good deeds and to be generous. The generous lifestyle is part of God's economy. It even says in Acts 20, verse 35, it said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So God is all about a generous lifestyle. Number three principle is hard work. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Christian people... Jesus' followers should be the hardest workers in a room. We need to understand this. That this is a biblical value of God, that Christian people work hard. We're not doing it to try to build up our own reputation. We're not trying to do it just simply to win the favor of our bosses, our teammates, our teachers, whatever scenario we find ourselves in. We're doing it because we want to honor God because he's worthy of our hard work. So we do hard things because that's what Christians do. We work hard. And number four principle is this. Be intentional and active in our stewardship. 
we're actually supposed to be aware of how and where we are investing our lives and our resources, and we should be active participators in it, not passive. In Luke 19, there's a parable of a king who gives 10 servants each a mina. A mina is like a, a measurement of money, a wealth. And so he gives each one. And then in Matthew 24, there's another parable where Jesus is sharing about a master who's going to travel away. So he gives his property over to three servants. He gives one five talents, one two talents, and one one talent. Both of these stories, what, what results is the judgment that falls on the, on the different servants is on the ones who bury what God gave them. They didn't steward it. They didn't do anything with it. They, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't active. They weren't intentional in what they were using with the resources that God gave them. They were just kind of living passively or they had a misperception of the master thinking that, like, you know, he's a harsh man and I, I just need to pull away from him. But actually in Scripture, the Bible says that with our resources, we're actually supposed to be active and intentional with what God gives us, but we lean into him as we learn to steward what he's given us. Are you following me? Because so, this is a really, I know this is just a big setup here, but this is the principle of God's economy. First of all, and, and we're supposed to be, what we sow is what we reap. Second of all, we're supposed to be not putting our hope in earthly things, but knowing that there's a, a, an eternity at, at stake, so don't think too much of wealth, but yet we're supposed to be generous and hardworking. The, 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 the fourth thing is that we're supposed to be intentional on purpose with our stewardship of our lives and what God gives us, and this sets us up now for the fifth and final principle of God's economy, which is this, we must be connected to a vine to actually be fruitful. For lasting fruit, there has to be a connection to a vine to actually see lasting fruit. So if you want to see blessing, prosperity, you want to see you know, rewards, like you need to be connected to, to the Lord for it to last, for it to be eternally good. Again, this doesn't mean we all get Mercedes and mansions. I'm not communicating that at all. God doesn't owe us anything. Did you know that? Actually, the one thing that we're, we're owed in Scripture, and this is going to be a hard word, but is hell. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of, of the glory of God. All of us have wayward. All of us have rebelled against the Lord. And the wages of sin is death. And that death leads us to a, an eternity absent of God, which is hell. That is the result of what we deserve. But God, in his incredible mercy, incredible grace, incredible goodness, he paves a way by living a perfect life, dying on a cross, defeating sin and death, resurrecting, making a way that if we put our hope and faith in Jesus, that's not our eternity. That's not what we get, even though that's, we don't deserve it, but he gives us life eternity with him in heaven. So we need to at least be sober saying, okay, God, it's not a contract. I'll do these nice things for you and I'll invest in these ways, but you owe me X, Y, and Z. God owes us nothing. It's in his goodness that he gives us anything, right? So I just wanna make sure we're sober-minded, but there's still this economy of God where we, what we put in is what we return. What we connect ourselves to determines the fruit of our lives. So, with all that said, let's jump back into John 15 so we can understand what in the world Jesus is talking about. Starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the, fine, is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So the very first thing that Jesus says in this passage to his disciples, he calls himself, he has an, what's called an I am statement. I am the true vine. In Jesus' ministry, he has seven I am statements where he declares something pretty radical of himself. This is the seventh and last thing he declares of himself before going to the cross. And when he says, I am the true vine, this is a pretty audacious statement. 
It would have been powerful. It would have been familiar imagery to the disciples because the vine had many, um, many meanings to the people of the Jew Jewish world at this time. The first one is that, first of all, they would have known that he's not talking about like a vine that grows on a wall like ivy, but he was speaking specifically of a grapevine. And around Israel in this time, vineyards were everywhere. Everywhere. There was vines and grapes everywhere, so they were familiar with the understanding of what a vine is versus a branch and how fruit would have been grapes. They would have understood this imagery on a very practical level. But secondly, the idea of a vine is actually representative of the picture of the people of God, people of Israel. And so much so that the temple that existed at this time, just down the street there in Jerusalem, where the Holy of Holies, the temple of the Lord is, there was a big relief, which is like a, a carved out sculpture on the side of the temple of Israel. And it was this massive grapevine and it was coated in gold. And it was the part of the decoration of the actual temple of God that everybody went to worship at. And that's how important this idea or imagery of vine was. And what they knew was, that what that picture spoke to was the people of God, Israel, being connected to God. So they understood this idea of connection, that God is the vine and that people of Israel are the branches and were connected to God. They understood the imagery in that the fruitfulness of their lives is their connection to God. But then Jesus is here saying, I am the vine. Like, so he is declaring a messianic declaration. He is saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that has come. I'm the one that's going to give you life. If you want to experience life and be connected to, to God, you must be connected to me. This is the radical statement he is saying just by saying, I am the true vine. Jesus uses this imagery of a vine and branches because it speaks of a complete and utter dependence on him. Complete and utter dependence on you. Let me say it this way. A branch depends upon a vine more than a sheep depends on a shepherd. So like a sheep needs a shepherd. A sheep's life could be short and difficult without one. But technically, a sheep can exist without a shepherd, right? Or a child can, can live and exist without a parent, right? But it is right and good and helpful for a child to have a parent in its life. But fruit cannot exist. A branch cannot maintain its health absent of the vine. There is an extreme statement here, not a, not a, a casual statement here. He's saying, if you are not connected to me, the true vine you will wither and die. This isn't just like you can kind of maintain it. And the problem is, is that I think Christians often, or the religious world often thinks that God is like supplemental. It's like putting sugar in your tea and it just makes it a little bit better and sweeter when God's like, no, like I'm the tea, I'm everything. Like you, 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 can't, you can't survive without me, right? Like I'm not supplemental, I am the full effect of what you need to sustain life. That is what Jesus is saying all in one statement. This is a very powerful and provocative statement. And he demands and expects our full dependence on him to survive. But picking up in verse 2, he says, Every branch that in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So in the first part of that, that, that verse, it says that to take away. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, this takeaway word, another way it can be translated, and, and some scholars believe it's better, is lifts up. So what he's saying is, yes, it could be discarded, like, oh, that, that part of the plant isn't making it, cut it off and take it away. 
But another thing is that vines would have these trellises and sometimes they would fall off the trellis and be on the ground and it was very unhealthy for the vine. It wasn't, it wasn't postured correctly, correctly for success. So they would actually go and pick up the vine or the branches and they would reattach it to the structure so that it had more opportunity to be fruitful. And what he's saying here is that there are parts of your life that need to be cut off or taken away because it's not producing fruit and or there are parts in your life that need to be restructured that you need to let God touch, move, manipulate, change, uh, be engaged with so that it actually can be more fruitful because where it's headed right now isn't good, right? So there's this idea of what needs to, the dead parts that need to be taken away, but then there's also this part that he talks about, about the live parts. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Well, for the fruit-bearing part, he prunes them. So congratulations, your, your reward for being fruitful is pruning, isn't that crazy? We don't really think about it like that, do we? Usually, we're like, oh, I'm fruitful, and now I can just relax. Thank you, God. It's so easy, you know, like finally something fruitful. But God's like, way to go. I'm so proud of you. And here, let me prune, cut this back just a little bit more. And you're going, oh, God, like that's uncomfortable. He's like, yeah, but I want you to bear more fruit. He rewards fruitfulness with pruning. And this word pruning is, yes, like cutting off or trimming, but it also can mean to clean. So sometimes it's God just coming and saying, hey, I want to polish this up in your life. I, I often think of the church as this way. If people try to do their Christian life absent of the church, I imagine them as like a rough, rugged rock. And you could put that rough, rugged rock in a bag and you could shake it all day long for days on end and you could pull it out and you'll have a rough, rugged rock. But you put a bunch of rough, rugged rocks in a room, in a bag, and you shake it. We rub the rough edges off of one another's lives, don't we not? Like, that's what we're called to do. We're already believers. We already are loved by God. We're already operating in fruitfulness, but then God wants to prune us and he can make us even more like him. He still wants us to operate as the church connected to the vine that he might rub the rough edges off of our lives. This is the desire of God's heart. So Jesus rewards fruitfulness with pruning. So do not be discouraged. I just want to say that. I feel like there's an encouragement here. If you're like, man, this master gardener God is like constantly messing with me. Like he's constantly pruning or cutting away or reorienting or correcting parts of my life. It's so that you might bear more fruit. It's because he loves you and cares about you that he engages. And what's so amazing is that period he's engaged. Whether there's dead things or there's alive things, he's, he's, he's present and he's active in your life. He's not passive and leaving the vine all on its own. God cares about the whole you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He wants to be engaged in the whole you. So fruit bearing is inevitable with proper abiding with Jesus. We find this in John 15, four through five. It says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So fruit bearing is a natural byproduct of just simply being connected to the vine. This should bring a lot of relief to us right now. Because I've never seen a vine sit there and go, fruit, and like, boom, a grape appears, right? Like, it just doesn't happen like that, correct? No, it's not striving and straining and trying to produce fruit. It just is a byproduct to the fact that it's connected to the vine. It's what happens when you're a part of the vine. And that is, such it is as Christians, as ones who love and follow Jesus, the fruit that God wants to produce in our life are the byproducts just simply of being connected to him. 
But sometimes we take on this works mentality, the striving, religious, dutiful mentality with our walk with Jesus that we're constantly uh, evaluating our worth, our position before God, our value based on how fruitful we think we are or not. And we start trying to make things happen, yet we're not actually doing it with Jesus. We're trying to do it for Jesus. And he's sitting there going, just connect to me. Why are you over there straining trying to produce fruit? (laughs) That's not how this works. Like, that's not how this economy of God works. You want to see fruitfulness and prosper and blessing? Come connect to me, because it can't happen absent of being connected to me. And so what are the fruit that comes from abiding? Well, Galatians 5 tells us in verse 22, says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So often we want to dictate and understand the idea of fruitful lives based on external things. And the good news is is that God does bless external things. He cares about that stuff too. But he always is an inside-out God. He he cares way more about the condition of your heart and your soul and your mind than he he does about your bank account or about anything on the external. Though he cares about those things. Don't hear me wrong. He talks about how the birds of the air have food, so do you. And the lilies of the field have clothes, so will you. He cares about providing and taking care of you. He cares greatly. But he would rather you be a poor beggar who walks in intimacy with him than a rich person who's a fool. That's a, it's a proverb that I just quoted. That's not my good quote. That's a proverb. And he, he's, like, he's like, I would rather you walk in poverty but be intimately connected to me, knowing my intimacy and my provision even on a small scale, then you have everything you could ever need, but you do it absent of me and you're a fool. This is what God longs for us to do is he longs for us to realize that the fruit of the Spirit is where it starts. God cares about our character. He cares about our integrity. He cares about the state of our souls long before we have to like, make everything external happen, though those ultimately are massively impacted as our transformation happens on the inside. So what he's telling us here in this passage is that if a branch is healthy or not, it will ultimately be shown in time. The fruit of someone's life, as you get to be around people and rub shoulders with one another, the fruit of what comes out of them ultimately tells you at what level they're connected to the vine, if at all. It's just something that we ultimately can't hide. I always think about this as like, we, tr- we think that we can like save face you know, and, and hopefully just kind of get by. My, my grandparents um, um, were, were Christians. They, they grew up in the Episcopal, or I grew up with them in the Episcopal Church when I was real young. Um, but like my, my grandfather was like, he, I actually don't know the state of his relationship with Jesus. Like, I mean, I was around him a lot and he, he was, you know, he went to church on Sundays, but he was a little bit uh, what we would describe in our family as an honorary man. He is kind of like, have you ever seen the movie Grumpy Old Men? Like, he was one of those guys, if you know the movie. He, like, that was his character. He, so much so, like, when he was in the nursing home as an old man, he would run his scooter over people's feet because he thought it was funny. And then they took his keys away from him, and he, he wrote the, uh, the manufacturer of the scooter. They, got his, they mailed him new keys, and he immediately began running people's feet over again, right? So that, that's Grandpa, right? He's, so, he's funny, goofy kind of snarky, but one thing that happened was that as he got older, he did get more mean, just to be really honest. He just, he was just rough, and, and, and what happened was is when he was a younger man, he could save face and act like the inside was cleaner than it really was, and he could give a better perception of who he was. When people saw him, he was a little bit more put together, but on the inside, 
He was fighting to let people not know what was going on in his heart. But as he got older, he just couldn't save face anymore. He's like, this is just who I am. And it wasn't always really pretty, right? Well, his wife, my grandmother, she was this beautiful woman. All my memories of her was not just going to church on Sunday, but I remember almost every time I go to her house, she had this chair. It was grandma's chair, and she had her Bible and a journal, and she would just sit there and spend time with Jesus and take notes, and she cultivated intimacy with God. Well, my grandmother ended up getting Alzheimer's. We had to put her in this, this group home for people with Alzheimer's. And I'd go visit her, and I'd say, hi, Grandma. And she'd go, oh, nice to meet you, right? She had no idea who I was. And I'd talk to her and stuff, and then I would walk just out of eyesight, like just around the corner. And if I came right back in, she'd be like, oh, hi, what's your name? Nice to meet you. And she would forget that I just had a 20-minute conversation with her moments ago, right? Full-blown Alzheimer's. But what was so amazing is every time I'd visit her, I'd say, Grandma, do you know Jesus? Oh, of course I do. You do? Yeah. Oh, well, do you spend time with him? I do every day. Did you spend time with him today? I sure did. Well, what, did, what, did, what did, was that like? Tell me what, well, he was telling me about this, this, and I was praying about that, and here, let me show you where I was in my Bible, and she showed me what she was reading that morning, and every day I'd come back, she would be walking through scripture, and it would be moving on. Though her body was fleeting, her soul was very much alive. So what fruit we're talking about is eternal stuff, not temporal stuff. What you connect to, what you invest in, what you are trying to develop in your, in your life needs to be beyond temporary, superficial garbage. That's why we just sang the world, the song, Take the World, Give Me Jesus. That's not just like a feel-good, like almost lullaby type of song. This is a, a cry of the believer's heart saying, man, the world being connected, it will lead to destruction. But when I'm connected to Jesus, it's eternally good. It's very different right? And so we need, to, we need to agree with that song, not just in theory, but in heart, saying, God, I want to be connected to you, because I realize my body will be ultimately fleeting, but my soul lasts forever, and I want to be connected to the vine, because what's inside will ultimately be found out. Matthew 7 says it this way, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So we're not looking to the vine or even the branch to know the health of something. We're looking to the fruit. So I honestly encourage you right now to evaluate the fruit of your life. Because it will be telling of how much you actually are dependent upon the vine, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our life and faith and hope that we have for not just this life, but for the life to come. But it is a good time to stop and reflect and say, God, like, what kind of fruit is coming from me? Does the fruit of the Spirit look like Jesus? Am I full of love and joy, patience, gentleness, kindness? Am I seeing these things? Is my marriage fruitful, the way that I serve and love my wife? Does it reflect that I'm actually connected to a source that's greater than my own ability? Because in my own ability, I'm a pretty bad husband. But when I'm connected to God, it's amazing what he can do. The same with my, my kids. I, I can be so angry and I can be so reactive to them. But man, when I connect to Jesus, I find myself having way more patience with them. I'm way more gentle with them. And then I'm able to train them in the way that they ought to go. I strongly encourage you to evaluate the fruit of your life. Because why John 15, verse 5, it's at the end of it says, but without me, Jesus speaking, you can do nothing. Yes, you can do a lot of activity. Okay? I want to make this really clear. You can do a lot of perceived good things. But only God knows what's eternal or not. Okay? And, and this should actually concern us a little bit because I feel like this is a, a deception that we can buy into as church people is that like activity equals to connectedness and it does not. 
We can get duped into going through the motions of church life or religious life, thinking that's equivalent to being connected to God. And that's just not the same. A big part of my job on our staff is that I meet with every person on our staff and I sit down with them as kind of the pastor of our staff and I say, hey guys, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? And I want you to answer this question. Do you know that there's a difference between a personal devotional life with Jesus and a ministry life with Jesus? And you can't just wing it and make it off of ministry life. I don't care how many sermons you preach or how many Bible studies you prepare for, how many songs you lead, whatever. That's not the same as you knowing how to be connected to the vine. And you need to be alive in God because a healthy staff will help make a healthy church. But an unhealthy staff will lead the church into a gutter, and I, that's the last thing I ever want to do. And I can't come up here in my own strength and say I have all the answers. I don't know. I don't have any answers for you other than be connected to Jesus. Get your needs met in Jesus. Learn how to have a personal devotional life with Jesus because without him you can do nothing. Nothing. John 15, 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And that branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So we cannot, we have to take this seriously. I don't believe God's trying to just be scary here, but this is a, a, a passage of warning that Jesus is giving, saying don't deceive yourself that thinking that activity equates to intimacy. Like don't think just because you do a lot of churchy stuff that you're actually walking and abiding with Jesus. And then in verse 7, the next, he does get a little happier here, a little turns the corner. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is a powerful passage about abiding and it gives two ideas I just want to share real quick. The first one is faithfulness to the word of Jesus is measured by abiding, is a measurement of abiding. So our faithfulness to his word, obedience to his word, shows is a fruit of abiding. So obedience is associated with the fruit, if we know that we abide with Jesus, if we obey him. So not just obey him in general, but obey his word specifically. So if you were to say like, oh, like, you know, I think Jesus is a really great guy, but I don't know if everything he said was true, you're not abiding in Jesus. You actually have to take him at his word. There's a faithfulness to his word that communicates that you know how to abide with him. And the second thing that we see here is that answered prayer is a measurement of abiding. Because he says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. How many prayers have you had answered lately? I'm not saying that as a, a judgment statement. I'm just being honest. Like, evaluate. Think about it. Like, God, have, have I even been praying? <laughs> have I been asking you of, of, of things? Have I been petitioning the heart of God for things? And then secondly, am I seeing them come to pass? God, am I relying on my own strength or am I abiding in you? Because answered prayer is a measurement of abiding according to John 15, 7. Picking up in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This is a radical statement that he just makes right here. First, there's two parts to this. The first one is that God is glorified when you are abiding in him. Like, do you ever feel like maybe you're a burden to the Lord? Have you ever felt like, oh man, I don't want to, if I ask that same thing, if I pray that same thing, if I... You know, if I go to him about the same issue, like, I'm, I feel like I'm maybe annoying God. Do you know that's the complete opposite of what this scripture is telling us is happening in his heart towards you? He's actually inviting you to say, come be dependent on me. I actually invite you into petitioning me and needing me because you were made to, and that's the way in which you connect to me. 
knowing that your source of need is actually met in me and not in anything else. And so there's this idea that God wants to address. If you feel like you've been putting God out, I'm, in, I'm here to encourage you, you're not. You can't put God out. He's not fr- like, oh, you again? You know you felt it. I'm, I'm not the only person that's felt it, surely. But God, that's not what he says here. And he even goes a step further. The radical second part of this passage as he says this. He says, you will abide in my love, or I'm sorry, he says, verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, can you even begin to comprehend how much God the Father loves God the Son? Can you even begin to try to quantify and put your mind around it? It's outrageous. It's absurd. It's complete. It's full, lacking nothing. And then he says, Jesus says, so I have loved you. His love is not lacking towards you. His love is complete towards you. His abiding isn't a punishment. It's an invitation of intimacy. It's an, it's an invitation of realizing that you weren't made to do things on your own and you actually have a father in heaven who wants to draw close to you and meet every need that you have. And then in verse 10, if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So part of abiding, the path to abiding is both obedience and obedience and obedience. So if you want to abide in the Lord, in the, in the, in the realm of, of being connected to him and, and knowing him and having him meet your needs, obey him. If you want to be connected and know the path of knowing God's love for you as he has loved the Father's love, the Son, so he loves you, obey him. Obedience is that pathway of connection. And finally, in verse 11, it says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, you were, you were made to be most satisfied when you were connected to God and God was made to be most glorified when you're connected to him. So he gets his and you get yours. Isn't that wild? As you get your needs met, as you are learning your identity and your value and your purpose, as you start to experience that economy of God of fruitfulness and provision and prosperity, it's only found as you connect to him and do things his way, which gives him glory, but also gives you the best outcome of life. Who doesn't want to be fulfilled? Especially when it describes it in this way, that your joy may be full. Anybody experience some full joy lately? Like you can't stop laughing, it makes your stomach hurt? I love that feeling, right? It's been a while since I've laughed like that. There's this place of satisfaction at the soul level that God wants to meet you in, but it comes in this abiding with Jesus. So real quick, I just want to hit a few more things and then we're going to wrap up here. But one is I want to talk about what we do when the fruit comes. So this whole passage, Jesus is talking about his economy, about stewardship in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven where we can't produce anything at all and it's definitely nothing that is good and eternal absent of abiding in him. That's the, the whole passage is about this being connected. And he's telling his disciple this specifically knowing that he's physically going to leave them, but he's saying you can still be connected to me, speaking of the Holy Spirit that's to come. That you yourself can walk in intimacy and power of the, because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit when you confess Jesus is the Lord. So he's setting this whole paradigm up, but then the goal is fruitfulness. The goal is that you would have a fruitful life. That people would look at your life and say, wow, like, there's blessing and favor and anointing and provision and care over your life. I can see that you walk with something that I don't walk with. Tell me about it. What is, have you ever had someone say, what's different about you because of how you walk with Jesus? We should. 
Because we should look different than people who don't walk with Jesus. There should be a fruitfulness of our life, of the character of God, of that, of that Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, happening in our life, and then the decisions thereof and how we live every day. Because we're living connected to God. But what do we do when we're fruitful? Because this is something I want to draw attention to, is sometimes we have the tendency or the temptation to take credit for the fruit. We're like, oh man, look how awesome I am. God just pulled us out of the mud. He cleaned us off and they're like, man, I cleaned up pretty good. As if like we did it ourselves, right? And I want to talk about like understanding how we deal with the successes of fruitfulness in our lives in a way that continually keeps us in the posture of connection and not disconnecting from God. And a good example of this is, well, first Jesus uh, in, in uh, Luke 9, he sends out all of his disciples and he says, you know, crazy stuff like go cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick. No, no big, you know, normal discipleship stuff. You know, stuff we should be doing every day anyway. He says, go do it. And then they go and they do it. And they come back and they're like, minds are blown. Like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe what just happened. All this fruit, like we saw demons cast out and dead raised and people that were sick healed and people, you know, calling upon the name of Jesus to, to be saved. It was amazing, Jesus. It was so awesome, right? And then what do they do? The very next scene, they're debating on who's the greatest. <laughs> My miracles are better than your miracles. Did you see what I did? As if they did anything? right? They started taking credit for the fruit in their life as if it was only solely their doing. That is dangerous territory. That is vain. That is proud. That is arrogant. And that is not connecting to the vine. So I strongly encourage you to stay in this posture of humility and gratitude saying, thank you, God. We don't need to be ashamed of the fruitfulness of our life, but we need to boast even more in Jesus, the one who brings the fruit in our life because we're connected to him, right? See, the Christian life is not about mastery because if it was all about just producing stuff, then we could just be really disciplined Pharisee type people and just do really, really, really good. And that would run us into a ground and that would be where Jesus calls the Pharisees a whitewashed tomb. That's like a polished casket where only a dead thing is inside it. But the casket looks really pretty on the outside, right? We do not want to be that. But the Christian life is not about mastery, it's about dependence. God is inviting us into a greater place of dependence on him. Saying, God, I can't take credit for anything. It's all you're doing. Yes, this life has trials and tribulations. Um, this isn't a promise to not struggle. Jesus tells us that he's gonna struggle, but he also promises that he's gonna be with us in the struggle. And he usually is the master, not usually, always, is the master of leveraging everything that the enemy intends for evil. He works for good, if we let him. So where there's a trial, there's a testimony, right? Where you're struggling, there's breakthrough coming. Connect to the vine. Say, God, what do you say? How do I respond to you? I pray and petition. Do, do you respond to my prayer? Because that's part of abiding, is that God responds to prayer. And lastly, I just want to talk about even more practical things about gifting. Because sometimes we think about fruitfulness with gifting. We think, oh, I have this talent. You know, I'm, I'm a good communicator, or I, I'm creative, or I'm an engineer, or I'm a great teacher, or I'm a fill in the blank, whatever your gifting is. And so we all of a sudden start to try to take credit for this. But your gifting will actually hurt you if not connected to the vine. Did you know this? You'll become dependent on your gifting versus Jesus and it'll actually start to hurt you. Peter's a great example of this, right? Peter had the foot and mouth disease issue, right? Like he constantly was like the gift of gab. He would, he would you know, interrupt God. He would, you know, he would say outlandish things that didn't make any sense or were inappropriate. He even rebuked Jesus one time. Could you imagine rebuking Jesus? It's like, oh man, foot and mouth, big time, right? 
because he had a gift of boldness and he had a gift of passion and zeal. Those are gifts. Those are God-given gifts. But it was unsubmitted. It was disconnected to the vine. But what happens after Pentecost? He's in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes and fills him. And there's this great dependence on the power of God to do whatever the power of God wants to do, not what Peter wants to do. All of a sudden, he's like, whatever you want to do, I'm in, right? And what happens? He goes outside and he preaches and 3,000 people give their life to Jesus in one day. God wants to use your gifting. He just doesn't want to have to fight with you over it, Right? He doesn't want to sit there and wrestle with you about your gifting. He gave you your gift. He loves that you have that gift. He just wants you to be dependent on how you use it, when you use it, and what ways you use it with him, not absent of him. So don't start to get ahead of yourself thinking that the gift was all you're doing. Yes, work hard, cultivate the skill, do all those things, but recognize it's still a gift from the Lord. And it has a purpose to it. Every gift is not given flippantly. Everything that he gives is on purpose, knowing it's for his glory and for your good. So I just want to challenge you to not let your gifting go past your character. Because if you're not connected to the vine, you're operating in your gifting, your character stops growing, but your, your gifting keeps going, and eventually you get too high and too mighty, and then you plummet. How many, how many times have we seen moral failure in the church, right? Pastors who have woo personalities, they can draw people in the cells, and they can talk really smooth, and you know, they're, they're great at expository scripture studies, or whatever, you know, and, and they gain the crowds, and then they have massive moral failure. Because at some point, they stopped operating connected to the vine and growing in dependence on Jesus and having him refine the fruit of the Spirit and the character of God in them. And they started coasting off their gifting and they plummeted. But what's so beautiful, guys, is even if you're in this room and you're like, I'm more like the one talent person, not the five or the two talent person, you know, in that parable we read or, or talked about earlier. Like God can take you who submitted to him and he can blow you past wherever your gifting stops. He can put you in places of influence, spheres of leadership, places of creativity. He can blow your mind the way that he can use you well past where you think your gifting stops. He's more impressed. He's more concerned about your character than what you have to offer in your own gifting. Will you stand with me? We're going to transition to a time of response, but I want you to catch this. God has this economic system, the economy of God, where he, we do participate. <laughs> we do work hard. We do operate with generosity. We do give and reap towards things where we want to see returns. There, there's this, we live intentionally. We live on purpose. But that living on purpose can't be absent of being connected to Jesus. Because real fruitfulness, real prosperity, real blessing comes as you're connected to the vine. And God doesn't want us to think that we in ourselves have done anything. <laughs> but it's really his love, that the same love that the Father loves the Son is the same love he's pouring out to you that it releases the ability and the opportunity that you might even know him in the first place. And so what I want us to do is we're gonna have a time where we respond. I'm gonna invite the ministry team to come forward. You guys can go ahead and come up, ministry team. And we're just gonna create a space where God can speak. And I would love for you as we do this to really ask God, like, what is the fruit of my life? What, what things have I been connecting myself to that isn't you? What motivations in my heart are temporal versus eternal? Where, where has my identity got more wrapped up in my job and my promotion or my societal position or whatever versus just being connected to Jesus? God longs for you to be prosperous. His Bible, his word is clear. 
He longs for you to be blessed. He longs to show you favor. He longs to be the wind at your back propelling you forward in the callings and giftings and, and fruitfulness of your life, but he does not want to fight you over it. He wants to be connected and he wants to lead you into it. So as we pray, as we respond, I just want us to do some time with Jesus and say, God, help me reorient. Help me to, maybe some things need to be pruned and cut away today. Or maybe God, maybe some things need to be reoriented. I, the grapes are on the ground in my life and they're about to die because I've been making some, some decisions that feel like I'm pulling off the vine. And God, will you come and will you re, reorient my life? I give you permission to have your way. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna respond. And I ask that before you leave, you just do, you do business with Jesus. Let's reconnect if, if, if you haven't been connected with him. And if you don't know Jesus, come forward and share how you wanna be connected for the first time. We love to introduce you to a relationship with Jesus. But Lord, we pray that right now, that you would come and move in power, that you would help us be connected to you in a way that is meaningful, that is purposeful, that is life-giving, God. I pray that we would not be with our own vain imaginations thinking that we can do anything lovely in and of ourselves absence of you. God, as believers in the room, may we not be duped in thinking just activity equals connectedness. But God, you're inviting us into walking in a way that abides with Jesus. And that abidance is, is found in receiving and operating in your love, and it's found in obedience. God, give us courageous, um, give us courage. Give us courage to obey, even when it feels difficult. Because God, I don't want to go anywhere the vine isn't. I don't want to go in any room Jesus isn't already walking into. I don't want to have any conversation Jesus isn't already speaking into. But I want to learn to abide with Jesus. God, would you teach us to be those kind of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's respond.